Do you remember the first time you picked up a camera? I do. I have a, I have a little uh, photograph of it. Um, and it's me and uh, Therese, who was a friend of my uh, parents. And there's a picture of me with this. It's not a box brownie, but it's like it's one level up from that. And uh, you can see me kind of struggling with the controls. And um, I guess I must have been three, something like that. You know? and, um, and then later on, I, I picked up my father's. Um, he had this Kodak camera that had the bellows that opens up and the bellows stick out. And uh, I did a lot of my early work with that camera. And why not keep it as a hobby? What, how did you, so many kids pick up gadgets of all sorts, what, why continue on? I suppose I, it was kind of in the family because my, my father uh, worked for the BBC. He was a drama producer and he, he was one of the pioneers of uh, three camera drama. Um, and produ he produced about an hour of live television every week. And uh, even though I could see the stress on his face, you know, it was, it was definitely an area that I was going into. Some of my earliest memories of my father was he would come home and he would work at home and he had a map of the uh, plan view of the studio. And then because the cameras were all, they all had cables on them, he would have a piece of string on this like plastic representation of the camera and, and where it plugged into the, uh, the wall and his, uh, his job was to block the show without a camera ever running over another cable because they were on wheels and they couldn't they couldn't run over the cable. So uh, that's like a very early memory of uh, me and uh, his his workflow. But um, no, it I only really ever wanted to be two things, and one one was a film director and the other one was a rock and roll star. So I can of like. And John Bonham was already... Exactly. Already. <laughs> <laughs> With the crowded profession. Yeah. <laughs> you grew up in the United Kingdom? I did. Uh, I, uh, I was born in central London on the Tottenham Court Road. And um, I believe we spent our early years in Notting Hill Gate. And then we moved out to what was then the country, but it was really suburbia. A place called Bushy Heath, um, which is near Watford, which is where Elton John owned his football team. So that, that gives you a reference. And um, it was also situated halfway between Elstree Studios and Pinewood Studios. So for me, it was a, a really good place to live because I could commute to either one of those studios. You know? And then at what point did you leave the UK? Well, I got a, uh, my dream job, which was to work for my favorite director ever, um, Stanley Kubrick, uh, on a movie called 2001 A Space Odyssey. And that was when I was 19 years old. And um, so I worked for like two and a half years on that movie, which is actually the longest gainful employment that I've ever had in my life, you know, in, in one stretch. And 
at the end of that movie, I was asked by Doug Trumbull, who had originally hired me onto that movie, to come and work for his new special effects company in um, California. So I came right after that movie in 1968, and really I've been here ever since, so uh, it's my country. Sure. At that time, what, what was Kubrick's, um, he wouldn't have been a legend, of course, at that time, as he was in his 20s or early 30s himself? No, he was, I'm not sure what age he was, but he was definitely a legend. He'd, you know, my dad had taken me to see uh, Paths of Glory, which was his first big picture, I think, with Kirk Douglas. And they had these wonderful tracking shots through the uh, World War I trenches. And uh, it was also a courtroom drama. So I think that was his, you know, before that he had done The Killer's Kiss and The Killing, but they were, they were smaller movies. So I think Powers of Glory was his first, uh, you know, really big movie. Um, and then, you know, he made movies like Lolita and uh, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying About the Bomb and Love It. You know? <laughs> uh, I think that's the byline of the movie. Um, and, um, no, he was, he, he, for me, and cause my dad had taken me to see all these movies and then some of them I went to on my own. He was, he was a pretty big deal. He was my, he was my favorite director. So to get hired by him on that movie was, uh, the stars must have aligned very carefully for me to get that opportunity. And, you know, I had some really good breaks in my life, you know? But um, I've always been ready for them. I'd always laid the groundwork. So when I got when I got the call to work on that movie, I had um, I had a, um, a a very strong training in animation. So I was hired as an animation artist, and um, then they, when they found out I could shoot animation, I became especially interesting to them because. Um, there's a process in animation where the animators animate, and then the, the animator, they write a dope sheet, which is an instruction sheet, to tell the, um, the cameraman how to shoot it. So it's, it's, it's like frame by frame, it tells the cameraman what to do. So I was able to do the artwork and then put it under the camera, and I skipped that dope sheet uh, phase of the process, so I became very useful to them in that way, and that's how uh, I got promoted very quickly, you know. Do you remember what it was like the first day you reported for the job? Um, yeah, I was excited to be there, but uh, I certainly wasn't nervous about it, you know. It was, uh, I think it's the arrogance of youth that you don't really know what you stepped into, and uh, um, I just felt, I felt very at home. I felt very supported by everybody that was around me. And, um, you know, I, I had this background in animation. I had taught myself, um, you know, I was a huge Disney fan as a kid. And when I was about 12, I wrote a book on uh, how to animate cartoons, which was a focal press book. And I taught myself uh, how to animate and to do cells and then my dad bought me a uh, 9.5 millimeter camera, 
uh, which was able to take single frames. So now I was able to get my animated drawings and turn them into animated films. So I had done that. And then um, after uh, school, I got hired by an animation company to do, uh, to be a, a trainee Rostrum cameraman. A Rostrum, uh, Rostrum cameraman is the name of an animation or a, um, photography process. So I had done that. And um, so I had this whole background that I'd been working on for years. So it, it seemed like I'd, I'd got this really lucky opportunity and I jumped right into it. But I had this underlying base of uh, knowledge and uh, practical skill in that before I, before I got there. Do you remember your first meeting with Stanley Kubrick? I do. Um, Originally, when I came to work at MGM, we were in the front offices because the uh, the production hadn't really taken over the studio as it would. And in, in, you know, within within six months, we were on every stage and every department. But at the moment, that we were in this little tiny uh, front office building, you know, that had probably about uh, eight or ten offices in that, and. Um, so I had started off working in, in this room uh, with Doug Trumbull, who had hired me, and another guy from the Film Board of Canada called Wally Gentleman. And there was uh, Stanley just kind of like walking, walking through the offices, and um, he seemed very relaxed. He uh, was smiling and laughing and joking, and uh, a very affable guy, you know, and, and very, very personable. So he was, you know, pleased to meet you, and uh, it was, uh, I, I remember it well. He came in with uh, Arthur Clarke, who had written, or co-written, uh, 2001 with him. He had written a short story that Stanley had based it on. And, um, but yeah, they were just wandering through the office. There was no, like, formality to it, you know. It was just, uh, it was very nice. And, and Stanley's office, remained open throughout the uh, throughout the production so you could go into his office he had a he had a note on his wall saying no half baked ideas you know, <laughs> so, you know you don't want to come in with anything that you haven't thought about and present to him that's not uh, not a formalized plan you know so very interesting guy you know so really an open door policy, not just what some HR paperwork says. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, he, he was, um, you know, he had some strange foibles to him. He, he, uh, he liked to have nothing in his pockets. So I think, I think he come in, in America, you have to carry your ID and your wallet and your car keys and, you know, so he had, he had nothing on him. Um, so he would bum cigarettes off other people, so he didn't have to have a pack of cigarettes on him. Um, and uh, he drove in this uh, classic Rolls Royce that was uh, at the studio. And uh, he had a driver, but that was really the only, uh, the only kind of, um, you, that you could call formal pretense or something that to run, you know. And, and I have to say, I was a very irresponsible kid when I was, on it, and I would frequently be late to work, so it would be like 9.30, and I'm coming into the parking lot, and the only, the only other guy that's walking into the uh, studio was, was Stanley, you know? 
and he he never seemed to be angry with me for not being so it was just like a nice polite wave and uh, I'd go in so um, so it, it was weird because um, there wasn't really a pressure to uh, work the, the pressure of the work was on you so as I um, so it seemed like I would come in and we'd, we'd uh, look around and we'd talk about what we'd done the day before and then it was tea time and then we'd have tea and then it seems like nothing really got done before lunch and then uh, and then round about three o'clock I'd start really uh, shooting in earnest and by the end of the day I'd got more uh, footage shot than uh, anybody else or, uh, that was doing the same kind of work you know so uh, it was the arrogance of you but uh, I guess with some talent you know did you have long hair? I did. Uh huh. I, nice. <laughs> I think that's another reason I was hired. You know, said, "Oh, he looks like the Beatles. You know, we should, uh, we should hire him." You know. Were you well received being so young on the set, or were there other people that were nineteen, twenty? Um, no, there weren't people as young as me. I was really the youngest around, and I was very well received in our little group but I think a lot of people uh, in the English film industry it's a much more kind of closed um, and um, nepotistic uh, loop you know than uh, than it is here and that was one of the great things about coming to America was that everybody was very open about everything and invested in your success but there was always kind of like a uh, there was always a feeling like, oh, he's, 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 around, um, he's maybe uh, a little too big for his britches, you know, uh, over there. So, um, some, you know, the people in our department were very, um, very enthusiastic and, and helpful, but others were a little like, what, what's he doing here? You know, it's, uh, I'm not sure about that, you know. Do you think that Stanley maybe saw a younger version of himself, sort of, just a sort of a free-spirited and, and maybe unintended, I don't know about the arrogance part, but just unintentional, sort of just idealistic, you know, free spirit? Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. I never really, uh, I never really saw it that way, you know, but I did, you know, because I idolized him so much. Um, I had asked him, this was one of my last meetings with him on the movie, I said, well, I said, well where, do you get, where do you get your ideas for your movies from? Where do they, where do they, uh, and he said, well, ah, that's, the, uh, that's a very good question, you know? And he had no answer for me. <laughs> so it, uh, aside from him having this real open door policy, did you learn anything from how he dealt with people or how he worked? Maybe just him being open and relaxed and joking that you kind of wanted to emulate yourself? I think uh, probably my style of directing is, is um, similar to his in that way, except that I'm, you know, I've never had the luxury of being able to be quite the perfectionist he was because, you know, he was certainly known in his later movies for, um, I think Scatman Crothers or something did 70 odd takes of something in The Shining, you know, so um, 
So he would he he was known for shooting many many versions of it, you know, and usually. What I find is if I shoot a lot of takes, it's usually the um, it's usually take one, um, or possibly the last take. But you know, um, but um, I I I think the uh, style of being relaxed on the set. You know, I I've worked with some pretty heavy duty directors that like to shout a lot and throw their weight around, and um, you know, to me that's not the way to get the um, the most out of a crew. You know. How did you become the cinematographer on Tron? I have no idea. Uh, I went for a meeting uh, with the uh, director, Steve Lisberger, at the Disney Studios. Uh, I'm not quite sure how I got that meeting or how it was set up, but uh, I think it was from my other friends in the business that, reckon, that recommended me. But then I, I got into the office and it was almost like I had the job before I even like begin, began the interview, you know. So I have no recollection of being interviewed for the job. It was just like, well, this is this is what we're doing, and you know, um, let's let's go, let's uh, let's get it together and do it. You know? So there wasn't much of an audition process there, but. Um, but there again, at that movie, because of its uh, technical challenges, there were um, they they were I don't think they were green lit uh, totally when when I took my meeting and got involved in it. So there were some screen tests and uh, different proofs of concept that uh, Disney wanted before the show moved forward, and so I was involved on those and so. You know, slowly, you know, everything came together and we got greenlit, this got greenlit and that got greenlit and then finally we were making the movie, you know, so it was a process. How did it work with the cinematography and then the effects? Like, how was that, especially in the early 80s? Well, there were three, um, three aspects of Tron. There was the live action and then there was the CG animation and uh, the the first CG animation ever ever uh, used on a movie, and then there was stuff that was created to be in the uh, cyberspace electronic world footage that was based on live action. Now that live action was uh, you know everybody was wearing like black and white suits and. Uh, it was shot in 70 millimeter, and they took every frame that we shot, and they blew it up onto a 16-inch um, wide codolith, and then those were put under the animation stand and shot with colored gels and diffusion filters, and so um, it became an animation process, and there were a lot of things that we had to do to make sure that when the black and white photography was blown up onto these uh, high contrast cells, that they would work in the animation process. And uh, mostly to do with having very, very sharp frames because um, there's something called motion blur in photography, which is when something moves in front of a, um, um, a motion picture camera, uh, things blur. And uh, so, for instance, if they had a line on their suit and um, they were in motion, if that line wasn't p 
perfectly sharp, <clears throat> it would just disappear from the codolith negative. So um, we had to have infinite depth of field. We had to have a very short uh, shutter, which meant that every image was like perfectly sharp, you know. And, um, and um, all that required a tremendous amount of light and um, the fastest film that we could use and the, uh, the fastest. Um, um, oh, and the, the other thing, to create that depth of field, we needed to shoot at a very, uh, very high aperture. You know, so a lot of the stuff was shot around f8 and uh, f16, uh, excuse me, f11, um, which required a, a tremendous amount of light. And uh, in fact, uh, Burbank Water and Power called the studio twice during our production and said, you're using too much electricity. We gotta, we're gonna shut you down if you don't uh, use a little bit less. So oh, wow. we were welding with light on that movie, you know. So they must have, they saw the, the usage from wherever they were yeah, for the yeah. meter. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. It peaked and they could tell where it was coming from. You know, so. <laughs> How long was the actual shooting of the film? Not, not these other processes, but. Uh, I think. Tron, I think we shot for 69 days. And um, <clears throat> I think the, the regular live action schedule, because um, we shot up in Lawrence Livermore Labs up there at the Shiva uh, um, <clears throat> Laser Lab. And um, then we shot set sets on stage. So I think that was about to run 25 days, all that kind of live action. And the rest was this hybrid black and white uh, photography that was later then going to be treated um, uh, on the animation stand as uh, special effects footage. You know? Do you remember uh, what it was like to see the premiere to attend it? Tron, the Tron premiere, the Tron premiere. Um, no, I just I remember the uh, I remember the they had a uh, they had a black and white ball where I, I guess the the women wore white and the men wore black and it was at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and uh, that that was a pretty fun event. I don't remember the premiere of Tron. Okay, well maybe it was a good night then. <laughs> maybe a lot. Maybe a lot of people did. No, because the story of Tron is is strange because. Um, you know, it, it, it was a picture that Disney had hyped a lot. And then somebody came out in the, um, um, in the Wall Street Journal and said, this is not the movie that's gonna save the Disney studio. And their stock dropped like two and, two and a quarter points. And um, then there was the premiere of the movie. And one week later, E.T. came out. So uh, it really kind of got eclipsed. And then, then somebody else at the studio said, okay, we don't want this, we want to take this out of uh, distribution because we want to release the DVD at Christmas, you know? So uh, when it came out, I don't think it was, um, it wasn't really that successful, but after, you know, after the summer, it started to pick up its own pace, you know, and then suddenly they, they cut it off to do DVD sales. So, but now it's a classic, so it doesn't really make any difference in there.
Were those the big video discs that you would kind of put in? Uh, laser discs, yes. Yes, yeah. I remember. Yeah. But also um, uh, videotape, I think, as well. David. Um, VHS? Yeah, VHS tapes. So how was that to probably be so thrilled to work on something that's groundbreaking? You put so many days in, what, almost 70 days of shooting time and then additional in post or whatever. And then to have like a, a well-respected publication just come and just, for whatever the agenda, maybe there wasn't any, but just kind of crush it. Well, it must have been a lot worse for Steven Lisberger than for me, you know, uh, but, um, uh, you know, my, my work had been over for a long time because obviously there was a live action schedule that I was involved in, but the whole post schedule was about a year. So we're talking about a project that I finished a year beforehand before it, uh, before it was premiered. So, um, um, I do remember the first time I saw the movie was at the, um, was at the Chinese theater on Hollywood Boulevard and it was supposedly projected in 70 millimeter and uh, the um, projections had it out of focus for the whole uh, for the whole show oh, no. and I was like I was trying to go back and say it's a lot sharper it's a lot better than this you know but, uh, <laughs> but that's something you get used to is like your uh, distri distribution of your product is not always at the quality or uh, that you uh, uh, shot the movie at. But now with um, digital, um, all that's kind of going away. And, um, you know, I think digital media is a lot more, um, I think it's a, a lot, even the, the chances of you seeing the way it was shot are a lot better in the digital world than uh, having you know, a print at a road show at a theater you know, and the, with a with a projector bulb that the guy doesn't want to run it at full voltage because the the bulb will last a little bit longer. You know, so, uh, so yes, I embrace the digital age. You know. When you booked your job on Star Wars, at that time, how big a deal was it? Was it similar to today booking a job on Avengers, or because it was a smaller movie, I think what he was sharing the casting space with um, Brian De Palma and they were making Carrie. They were kind of swapping actors. I don't know, do you want this person? Oh, I'll take him, yeah, okay. I like that Mark Hamill guy. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that story. <laughs> oh, That's okay. good, I like that. <laughs> Supposedly on the Carrie behind the scenes, they, they said that, yeah. But how, I'm oh, sorry, so how was that to, uh, to work? Was it, was it not a huge deal at that moment because we didn't know the effect of it or? Well, um, I had originally uh, interviewed um, with uh, George Lucas and Gary Kurtz um, to um, to do the visual effects to be the to be the first unit uh, um, visual effects director, and um, I had you know I had uh, I spent a lot of time in my early career saying, uh, oh, I've done that. I don't want to do that anymore. I can, uh, I'm going in this new direction. So, um, so I had been shooting uh, as a live action DP, uh, a bunch of pictures for Roger Corman. And uh, so that was the, the direction that uh, my career was going. Um, so my good friend, John Dykstra got the, um, uh, the job to um, do the main unit visual effects 
And they invented this incredible motion control system, which enabled uh, you to shoot models moving very fast. Uh, you know, in 2001, the spaceships were moving so slowly that you could just shoot them single frame and, and it was fine. But, uh, you know, when you have a ship that's moving really fast, um, once again, you know, the, the motion blur became really important. So that meant that you had to shoot the model while the camera and the model were in motion. So during the exposure, which might be as long as four seconds or something, you know, the, the model was actually in motion and the camera was in motion at the same time. And that took uh, uh, the invention of motion control software and it had never been used at this scale for so many shots um, before. So, so when um, George got back from shooting the live action in England, he, he, he walked into uh, Industrial Light and Magic and said, well, where's, where's the footage, you know? And they really hadn't shot any footage because they'd been developing this hardware software system. And um, so he got like, he got really frustrated and um, he, he, uh, he called me up to, to, to work on this little uh, second unit. Um, and he had this harebrained scheme where he wanted some puppeteers in black velvet suits and he wanted to put the models on long black rods and like fly the puppeteer them in front of a lens so that they were, um, you know, that the puppeteers were um, flying the... So, and, so it was kind of like a live action way of getting some of that model photography. Well, of course, that didn't work out at all. That was a really bad idea. But my unit then turned into this um, uh, pyrotechnic unit. And uh, um, there was this uh, kid, Jovis Kosal, who, was, who made, real, he made these really great little miniature bombs. And, there, uh, you know, he was... Um, so, we, uh, so we started shooting these explosions and we would shoot... I would look directly up at his explosions so they would explode over the lens and therefore give it the zero G impression that it was happening in outer space. Because obviously if you, if you shoot an, ex, uh, an explosion normally, you get a big mushroom cloud and it doesn't, doesn't look like it's in outer space. So uh, we started off letting these little bombs off and it was um, um, quite successful and shooting them with high-speed cameras. And then we got bigger and bigger and we moved on to much bigger stages until eventually we we had like a 40 foot blue screen and we would drop the wire down in the middle of that blue screen and we would light the blue screen with like, I think there were uh, eight arc lamps, you know, which were the most powerful lamps that you could get in those days and uh, shooting them with a VistaVision camera. And we would, we would shoot up through a piece of glass, which was with two saw horses and a piece of plywood and a hole cut out <clears throat> to shoot through and then a piece of glass was over that to protect the lens. And then we, we let off these bigger and bigger bombs until finally we had the, uh, the explosions that we needed for uh, blowing up the, the, uh, the Death Star and also for blowing up Alderaan. And um, I also uh, uh, shot a whole bunch of my, my friends that 
um, Industrial Light and Magic were making all these beautiful models, and I got to blow them up. So uh, you know, it was a, a fun little shoot. You know. And then the reception of the movie, were you anticipating the reception, or were you surprised? I was very surprised by the reception of, of the movie. You know, I think we went to see it at the Academy Theater, and we said, "Hey, this is this is really nice." But then, like within a day or so, there were these long lines outside the movie, and you know, it's it's kind of a trick that theater owners do. They like to keep their audience wait, waiting on the street, so it looks like a hit movie. You know, so everybody drives by and see. There's a line of people, but these were like, these were going around the block, you know. So, um, yeah, it was um, unlike 2001, which had this really kind of slow build. Um, Star Wars was like an a instant hit, you know, and uh, that summer. But then who knew it would grow into such a franchise and, uh, um, you know, it just went from strength to strength until it's, I guess the world's biggest franchise right now, huh? Anything you observe with working with George Lucas in terms of how he worked, how he worked with actors, his work ethic that you felt you wanted to emulate as well? George was um, very, uh, very good to work with. Um, he, he really knew what he wanted and, and where he was going with it, and he knew what you, he wanted you to do. So, um, I really enjoyed the fact that he was so prepared. He also had um, uh, he had a technique which uh, we now called a ripomatic, and that technique was to he got footage from uh, old World War II movies like The Dam Busters and Tora Tora Tora, and he basically cut his end action sequence out of footage from these World War II movies. And then that became uh, a template for the effects because you, you know, you'd, you'd go to the cut and you'd say, okay, I need a, a ship moving from left to right and another one coming in this way. And um, it's gonna be 17 frames long. So it was a way of, um, you know, they have whole departments in movies now called previews. Uh, for, for doing this kind of work now, but uh, back then, um, this was a technique I'd never seen before, and uh, it worked really, really well. You know. When you were hired as a cinematographer on your first film, how prepared were you that first day? I think the first live-action film I shot was for, a, was for a guy called Roy Cannon, who was Stanley Kubrick's prop master on 2001. And he had this little dark uh, noir um, murder mystery that he wanted to shoot. So we, we shot in a, in a, a three-story walk-up in London. And, um, you know, I, I have to say ignorance or arrogance, I don't know which it was, you know, it's like I, I, I knew how to load an Aeroflex and uh, I had a couple of sun guns, which are handheld lights, and I knew how to read an exposure meter, and I said, I can do this. Yeah. And so uh, that was the first live action film I, I shot as, um, as a DP for somebody else. You know, I, I obviously shot stuff 
for myself for uh, growing up, but you know, that was the first. So um, I was probably very unprepared, you know, but uh, I seem to have a natural uh, uh, bent for it, you know. And then um, the next live action feature that I shot was, um, was for a friend that he was making kind of um, a music movie. And so it was, um, it, it was a very bizarre, it was, my, it was like a long music video. And um, I shot that and I had a knack for moving people into lighting that was really good. So I, I, I don't think I used a light on that movie, um, but I was able to move uh, the action of the movie into really great lighting situations and shoot with natural light. And everybody, everybody looked at the footage and say, hey, this is really great. It, it looks so natural and, uh, you know, alive, you know? And that's because it was, you know? So um, it wasn't until much later that I learned about uh, lighting. And then I think as I learned about lighting, I think my, uh, I think my work got worse um, in terms of it, it had a very kind of lit look to it. And then once I'd mastered those tools, I was able to use those same tools to create very naturalistic lighting, um, but with, uh, with artificial sources. So um, there was a progression there, but luckily I, ne I never screwed up bad enough not to get the next gig, so uh, you know. So the old saying, you need to know the rules before you can break them kind of thing applies to the lighting? Um, yes, I think so. But um, also I think um, the lesson I learned that I tell people that uh, ask me what, what they should do is, you know, should I be, should I get a job as a loader and then be an assistant cameraman and then be an operator and then be a DP? and my answer is that if you want to be a DP, that you go ahead and be a DP and uh, um, start shooting and um, you know learn learn from what you see from your results. And you're probably going to find a level as you as you work your way up that you're you're good enough for a particular project. You know, but I think taking the um, taking the bit by the horns and saying I'm 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 going to do this job and um, just try your hardest every opportunity that you get to shoot, then I'm, that, that, that was my path, not the, uh, not the conventional path, you know? At what point in your career and which project where you headed off to set and you realized, wow, this is, I, you know, I need to be really prepared, I can't mess up, and then it might have gotten in your head a little bit because the stakes were higher? You know, everybody kind of hopes to get to a certain point and then there's a new problem of, wow, now there's all this pressure on you. Right, I think the most pressure I ever felt was, um, uh, I did a project called The Incredible Shrinking Woman, which was a movie with Lily Tomlin. And um, I decided to do all the visual effects. I was the, effects, the visual effects director and the director of photography. And I decided to do all the, um, all the effects is rear projection and front projection, which is a technique where you shoot the actors in front of the live 
live plates that are being projected. So once you send that film to the lab, that's, you're done. There's no optical process, there's no post-process to that footage. And um, this was, I was, I was kind of out on a limb with that. So I was using uh, equipment that hadn't been used for a long time, which was VistaVision um, rear projectors and front projection equipment. And um, I think there was, a, there was a time when that process wasn't going really well, you know. And uh, I, I felt that um, uh, I felt scared that the process wasn't going to come together, you know. But it did, <clears throat> so it paid off, you know. But I think um, I don't think there's ever a day that I go to work. If you know, if I if I wake up for a shoot day and I'm not nervous or I've, I haven't had a shiftless night the night before, you know, then there's something wrong. I'm not doing my job, you know. So it's always been, it's always been very uh, stressful because if you're not stressed, then I don't think you're doing your job. You know? That's a great point because I feel like now, especially in the kind of current state, there's like this, I got this mentality and it's almost considered a negative, I feel like to some people, to show or to be nervous. And I'm not talking about fumbling and shaking and you know <laughs> tripping over yourself nervous, but right. just to, to have some humanity to it. And, and you know, it, it almost seems like now there's a new breed of, of mindset, any generation of just sort of this, I got this and yeah, I'm fine. Well, I think was, I th in a lot of people's work that I see these days that are kind of up and coming, there's a bunch of stuff that they don't know that they don't know. So, um, so they, they've got what they think is required, but um, if you're going to take it to a higher art form, there's a lot more that you need to know um, in order to get there. But I think it's a, I think it's a combination. You've got to have that, you've got to have that attitude that, you know, I can do this, this is going to be great, but you've also got to have the, you know, you, you've got to know realistically what your problems are going to be. And, to do everything that you can to overcome those. So I think, I think it's a combination of the two things, you know. Who was the first legendary director that you worked with and what was that like for you? Was it Stanley Kubrick? It was Stanley Kubrick. And, um, um, you know, having seen all his early movies that I was exposed to by my father, he used to take me up to the National Film Theater in London and uh, all, all the, the, the um, all the great directors at that time had uh, films that were shown there, but the the guy that really stood out to me was Stanley Kubrick. So to be uh, working for him was really an amazing experience, and uh, I don't know how that happened, but uh, um, working for Stanley is probably um, the most informative experience I've had as a filmmaker. And to have it happen so early in my career, um, um, really, I feel very blessed. Who was the second legendary director? So you, you had this dream essentially fulfilled. You probably didn't realize what an opportunity it was. Maybe you did at 19. Maybe you thought this was gonna happen all the time. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I think after 2001, you know, I, I 
it, it was a shock to come into the regular film industry because I thought, oh, all movies are like this, you know, that, um, which was like a two and a half year experience um, working in an environment with my favorite director ever, sitting in dailies with him, answering to my footage that was being shown on the screen, you know. And um, so um, I think that that experience of uh, having a really demanding director looking at your work for two and a half years, is uh, they can't get much worse than that or better. You know? So the second most, um, I'm not sure, I, I, I worked with John Huston once, uh, not for very long. I, I shot the first few shots of um, Pritz's Honor for him. So that, that was amazing. Uh, I worked on the first Star Trek movie, which Robert Wise directed, and I shot the first, uh, first five minutes of that movie. Um, so I think, the, I, I think they really rate up there. Absolutely. When you went back to work or to look for a new job once uh, the Kubrick you know, film ended, the 2001 Space Odyssey ended, then how was that an eye-opener for you since you probably thought this was going to become a pattern, it was going to, you were going to be working on big sets continuously after that point, maybe? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I left 2001 um, and went to the premiere in 1968, I think it was, and uh, I had hoped that I would go on all the, all of the uh, other special effects crews uh, went on to a picture called Battle of Britain, which was being shot at Pinewood Studios, and I was not invited to that party. So, um, you know, um, because really I was like Doug Trumbull's guy, and uh, you know, Doug left and went to uh, to the states. So. Um, so I found the British film industry to be very clicky, um, and it's very you, you know you have to kind of like um, nurture nurture your group there, you know. But uh, I love coming to America because it it's like uh, people actually want you to succeed here, you know. So um, no offense, Britain, but you know, it's a little different. Maybe it's changed. Now. <laughs> yes, hopefully. So you came to Wild and Crazy California. Yeah. Uh, had Easy Rider come out yet, or was it, it? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. I came. Uh, I came over here to work on a picture called Zabriskie Point, uh, which was an Antonioni movie, and Antonioni was um, another one of my favorite directors. He did a picture called Blow Up, which was like a huge. Um, um, revelation in terms of movie making to me and I, I just love that movie and uh, it's about a, a, a very fashionable London still photographer uh, that he he's he's shooting some shots and he takes the stuff back to his dark room and starts blowing up all the things and he realizes he's witnessed the murder that happens on film so he blows up the Pictures bigger and bigger, and it's um, fasc fascinating movie. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm working for him on a picture called Zabriskie Point, and basically at the end of the movie, the whole world blows up, and 
Uh, so we shot a sequence which was uh, supposedly Los Angeles blowing up. So um, we went out to the desert, uh, to Rosamond Dry Lake, and we let off thousands of pounds of napalm with high-speed cameras and shot these explosions at night. And uh, we did this match shot, and we put them into this match shot, and uh, it was never used in the movie. But then uh, 12 years later, Doug found this footage in the, uh, uh, in the cans that he'd been working on. And Ridley Scott was looking for a snappy opening to his movie Blade Runner. And so they used our explosions uh, that we'd done uh, in that opening scene in Blade Runner where you're flying over Los Angeles and all these uh, uh, mushroom clouds of fire are going off. So it got used in the end. You know? Did you got? Did you get to go to the premiere of Blade, um, Runner? Of Blade Runner? I didn't. Oh, I was going to see. No, and it's, ne it's never been on my resume, but I guess it could be. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was wondering if you had met uh, Philip K. Dick. I think that was his last sort of. Ah, uh, no, no, unfortunately not. Okay, yeah. interesting. What do you think makes a great director? Well, for the longest time, I was trying to discern what that was, you know? I think uh, because if you go on a set, the kind of sets that I like, uh, you, you see everybody working and, you know, the ADs like shouting out all the instructions and doing this and that, you know? And the whole movie is really taking place in the director's head. So, for me, to go on a set and see what the director's process is, is almost impossible. Because if he's done his job right, then he's like, he's cast the actors and he's cast the crew. And when he gets to the set, the, except for like steering the ship a little bit this way or a little bit that way, shouldn't really be anything for him to do, you know? He should be able to sit back and let all these building blocks that he's put together to, to come like before that camera that day um, to let that happen. Now, there are a lot of directors that that's not their style, you know. And also when I'm, I, I always seem to get myself involved in projects that I don't have enough time for. So um, time becomes a, and then I have to be very proactive and look, okay, the camera's coming here, the actors, you know, so you can, you can, on those kind of movies, you can tell who the director is. But my, uh, my impression on going on set with um, uh, some of the great directors is that you can't really see what their process is. It's so, um, uh, yeah, it's really, it's really hard to know what people's process is except by the quality of their product, you know? What do you think of the cliche that some directors are afraid of actors? Do you think that's really true? Or do you think that some people just operate better sort of being removed and letting them do their thing and it gives the appearance of fear? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because Kubrick has a reputation of not really... Um, Someone said, I think, that if he, if he was a CGI animator, he'd be able to control every aspect of his movie, you know, because you're doing it all pixel by pixel. But um, 
And I think some of his best movie performances that he got were from an actor called Peter Sellers. And um, I'm sure he was an actor that you could just like wind up and start shooting and there were, you know, the, the performances there. I think, um, I think a lot of inexperienced directors are uh, afraid of the star power of the actors that they're, that they're working with. So they, you know, they don't quite know how to deal with that. And I think a lot of star power actors working with those directors are saying, I'm not really getting enough from you as a director, so I, I want to be directed, you know. So I, th I think there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of layers going on there, you know. But um, if you are afraid of your actors, um, that's not a helpful place to be because those actors are your movie, you know. And um, I don't like to give actors direction. I like that, you know, I've cast them, I've seen them in the thing, and I'm, I, I sit back and I, I want to see their performance. Now, if, if there's something that's not working for me story-wise, or we, you know, but, um, but I'll never sit back in the chair and, and yell at the actor, hey, why don't you do it this way? You know, so, you know, for me, direction is I'll, I'll get up out of my chair, I'll go into the set, take the actor to one side, and we'll have, we'll have a very uh, personal conversation about it. So, um, actors are your movie, you know. What's the most important part of the cinematographer's job? I think the most important part for a cinematographer is his relationship with the director. And basically as a cinematographer, you are there to facilitate the director's dream. So, um, you know, I think it's very important to have a point of view that you bring to it. In other words, you've read the script, you, you see the, the movie in a certain way, uh, one of the first things I like to do with a director that I'm about to work with is to uh, get in a screening room and watch some of the movies that we think are like relevant to the one that we're doing or, or his favorite movies. And uh, I bring the same thing to the, uh, to the party so that we, that we watch other movies and there, um, we come to a, uh, a, a symbiosis of, of uh, the way we're going to treat the material. Because very often on the set, everything's moving so fast that you can't, you know, you can't have that kind of artistic collaboration because the actors are out there and you go to light it and you, you know, you got someone screaming at you, you've been lighting that for seven and a half minutes, come on, <laughs> we gotta, we gotta go. So uh, in the heat of battle, um, you can't necessarily have the, 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 the kind of collaboration that you would like, but you need to have set that up ahead of time. And um, that is your job is to, is to bring a visual, um, a visual flair to the story, but at the same time, um, you're, you're there to facilitate the director's vision. Speaking of battle, we hear sometimes that uh, a cinematographer and a director will clash and the cinematographer will say I need this sort of this isn't going to work both to have a different agenda what 
advice would you recommend to new directors uh, if they're in that spot and how do they take it away from the set? I realize at times it's going to be chaos, you're not going to be able to fight it and you probably don't want to do it in front of a crew. But, but if faced with that dilemma, which we've definitely heard from a lot of people or, or, or you know, just a clashing, how do you take that away from the set and just try to make it through the entire production? <laughs> well, uh, you know, there was a reason that you were chosen in the first place. So there must be, there, there must be, you know, unless unless you're a new director in the studio, said, hey, we're going to put this old-time cinematographer on your show, and he's going to make sure that you've finished it in 21 days. You know, so there is that, which, and that's very hard for a young director to to work with. But you know, let's assume that's not happening. And you know, a director's chosen you, and you're you're working on his project, and uh, something does blow up. That's exactly what you do: is you just take him on and say, "Hey, let's take this outside," you know, and um, you have whatever that discussion is going to be away from the set, because um, you know, public uh, airings, airing of grievances um, has no place on a set for me. You know? Sure. And last question in the same vein, uh, someone left a comment, which I thought was interesting. And they said, if you are either a DP or a director, make sure you have some people in your own camp on set with you so that the production doesn't run away to somebody else's side and everybody kind of turns. So do you have a core set of people you always like to work with? Not just for that, that uh, possible problem, but I, it was something I had never thought of, never having been in that situation. But they said to always have some people, quote, in your own camp because things could quickly turn and then somehow the production gets away from one of the two. Well, I'd say earlier in my career, I lost jobs because I didn't have that core crew. And, uh, you know, the producer wanted to hire somebody that had his gaffer and you know everybody in place, and they were a well-oiled machine that could come to work on his picture. You know, um, working for years and years as a, a commercial director cameraman, um, I was I had a different kind of most most commercial directors. They they're with a company, and every time they go out, they use exactly the same people. I had a slightly different business model in that I was a freelance director. So I would go out to like regional advertising and I'd, I'd go to a new city and I'd have to put a whole production together from scratch. And in that situation, I used to maybe only be able to take like one guy with me. And, uh, but I always, I, I didn't always get that one guy, but um, uh, I think it is really important. You know, and <clears throat> I actually used to take uh, my key grip, which people thought was unusual. People always think, oh, he's going to take his gaffer, you know, or this, because, uh, and I used to, I renamed him from key grip to crew chief, which is a motor racing term. And it's really the, the guy that runs the whole physical operation. And he used to, he used to work for me in, in that area, and that would let me deal with the agency and the actors and and the and the cinema. So I think uh, I think crew members um, are very very important that you have that shorthand with that person um, that you can get things done very quickly. You know, 
and time is the enemy. So, is it almost like being in war? Uh, well, I think it's much more pleasant. <laughs> I would imagine, um, but it is. You know, there there, there are there are uh, there's a lot of money at stake, and um, you know, um, showing up is the first rule. So um, being on time on a set is like is my number one rule. And I probably got that from being so arrogant about it when I was a kid, you know. Uh, but because, you know, from the from the moment you arrive on a set, the clock is ticking and um, I, I, I hear the I hear the dollar bills dropping, you know. Sure. And um, so um, I think it's um, a strategy that you, in other words, you have to have a battle plan to go into your day's shoot. And you have to have everything worked out to the nth degree. In other words, when I do a schedule, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's every 10 minutes. So 10 minutes in, I'm doing this, 10, you know. So, because I, I often get to other people's sets and people are like they're in the makeup trailer and they're like they're having their cup of coffee and, you know, and no, nothing's, nothing's happening, you know. So for me, the very first thing that you do is you get the actors out on the set and you block the first scene. They're not, I don't care if they're in makeup or, or what, but the moment they arrive on the set, we block the first scene. Um, so it's very important to have that battle plan to work with, but then you've got to be prepared to completely throw that away if either creativity or necessity takes you off in another direction. So you've always you've always got to have a plan B, and you've always got to be able to punt if for, uh, um, if things go in a different direction. So be totally prepared, and then be prepared to give it all up. You know? Is reacting to an image a DP's only concern while they are on set? Once the director yells action. Well, once the um, once the director yells action, the die is cast, you know, so uh, whatever you bought together, but the DP's function is, um, I would say it was 50% uh, uh, carrying out the vision, the vision of the director, and 50% uh, management of like the toys that he has and the people that he has and, and how to get it done. So, um, you know, there's, there's a fast way to light a set and there's a slow way to light a set. And, you know, the, the reality is that you, you're going to be in between, you know. So um, I would say that's the only time when the image is um, the only thing a DP has to worry about is when the director yells uh, action, because then there's nothing else to do because you've, you've done everything else that you that you were there to do, and it's all to bring you to that moment when he says action. So you're, you're bringing everything to a nexus at that point, and then, then the movie's being made, so. You came to the States from the UK 68? Yeah, I came in 68. Do you think the film industry, this, despite technical changes, is very similar here in the US? I know you came from what you thought was maybe more of a, a closed network system, and then you come to this wild and crazy town and there's music, there's all sorts of, you know, 
different uh, landmark things happening at that time. But in some sense, would you say that the film industry has not changed, or is it different? I don't think it's changed at all, you know, because um, the business is about telling stories. That's the bottom line. And <clears throat> the, the art of storytelling, um, I, I guess it's made advances because there are different tools available. There's a, there's a wider range, or there's a wider um, array of tools to let you tell more expansive stories. You know, in other words, you know, with the advent of uh, CG animation, you can anything that you can think of, you can put up there on the screen. So it's changed technically, but the, the, the bottom line is that tell, telling a good story and what that good story is, is virtually unchanged. What about how one breaks into the industry? I think it's much tougher for kids now to break into the industry. Um, you know, when I got hired on 2001, there was really there was virtually no one else they could, they, you know, I happened to be this kid that had done an apprenticeship in animation camera work, and uh, I, I was not actually working for the original company I'd worked for, but I was off uh, shooting and animating for, for another guy. But Doug had come to this original company, and one of the guys there had like called me and said, they're looking for, you know, if you had a job in England at a company, you, you were kind of a lifer there, you know? It's like you, don't, you, you didn't take a few months off to go and shoot freelance for uh, two or three months on a, uh, on a live action movie. You did, if, if that's what you did, if you were a live action person, they were freelance, but in the animation business, People weren't freelance. They were kind of lifetime employees with the company. Or they would move from animation company to animation company to long-term jobs. So, um, so it was very easy for me to, um, uh, I, you know, I don't know how effortlessly it was, whether it was because I had long hair that I was hired, but, there, uh, you know, it didn't seem that hard. And then um, as time goes by, um, you know, I think your resume builds builds your next gig. So, um, but people uh, breaking in today, I think it's much, much harder. A, because the number of people that have visual arts degrees is like, I mean, that's, you know, half the people in university, I think, have that uh, these days, you know? I mean, it's like just a huge area, and there's, there really aren't enough jobs to go around for those people. But there again, Netflix is, and all the other streaming companies, there's so much product being made that, are, uh, that that's a big equalizer. So that there's a lot of work out there, much more than there was when I started. But um, getting that work is like, you know, the competition for that work is much, much greater now. When you came to Los Angeles, what was one of the first things you did to try to land another job? Well, I came to Los Angeles with a job. That's right, sorry, Mr. Trumbull. Yeah. So um, I was actually, uh, Doug had told me that I've got this great future for you in this little black room in here. And, and you know, it kind of like, oh, really? And 
didn't really want to be in that black room. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, there were people that would come into Doug's studio that were, um, uh, that were working on very interesting projects, you know, and I got to meet those people as, as they came in and it wasn't long before, oh, Bruce, Bruce can shoot, you know, let's, I've got a little project here, you know, and there are, and, you know, I kept working on all my, you know, I kept working so that when I got that break, I was always ready for it because I had done the homework, you know, and kept doing that. And then things, you know, it always seemed like, you know, I look back on my career and people say, oh, God, 2001, Star Wars, um, Tron, you know, all, the, all these groundbreaking movies. It seems like I've had this incredible run and I have but at the end of each one it just seemed like I was looking for work and you know it didn't seem that easy to do that but uh, but the, the resume helps you build that you know do cinematographers care about story structure I have to say that in the early part of my career <clears throat> um, I did not and that was a big mistake I think my Career could have been um, a lot better if I had um, been more in touch with the structure of the story. All my career, I've been working in the background on my writing career. And so from, uh, from the very early 80s, I've been writing screenplays and studying uh, screenplays and my work got better and better as I was able to put together story structure with cinematography. You know, the other place that I learned a lot about cinematography was when I became an editor and I was in the editing room because as a cinematographer, you think when you turn the camera on to when you turn it off that everything's got to be perfect in that one shot and that's what you're going for and you say oh well we missed that little bit here and you know and the reality is when that shot gets to the editing room they're only going to use that little piece of it so um, you can say that take has some really good things in it you know so we definitely print that one you know even though it wasn't a perfect take and the downside of that is that then sometimes you see a really bad camera move being um, ending up in the movie, you know, but at the same time, it's, it's much better for the story and for the filmmaker. So um, um, I think having those parallel disciplines um, coming together has made me better in all those areas. Being a cinematographer has made me a much better writer than, um, than I would be or director, you know. So everything builds on itself, you know. What were some of the first screenplays you really dissected once you got to LA and you were you were working, but you were doing this on the side, which was sort of this parallel talent? Because one seems more action driven, the other one is more internal. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, no, I I, I think so. Um, you know, I I read some of my early screenplay works, and they're uh, you know they're completely without. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the great thing about screenwriting for me is there are some massive, hard and fast rules of writing screenplays. Uh, 
But at the same time, within that, you have this infinite freedom. And um, it's really the structure of it that gives you that freedom. So, yes, there are rules, but um, there's this uh, massive, you know, um, you don't drive between the lines when you when you're writing, you know. So the um, so the writing process. I'm trying to remember um, what screenplays I really enjoy. I I think the first screenplay that I really uh, looked at and said this is a great screenplay uh, is uh, Network, uh, Paddy Chayefsky, and um, also The Verdict is a is a fantastic screenplay to me. <clears throat> and um, you, you know there there are a lot more now um, uh, because I, because I really enjoy reading screenplays, you know. And I'm uh, just becoming a member of a, a group where we, we take a current screenplay and kind of break it down as, as writers and filmmakers. Um, so that's, that's a very interesting process for me, which I really enjoy. So just as you had done lighting on your own and people complimented you on using this natural light, but then you went and learned the formal way and then it felt maybe overproduced, and then you had freedom to kind of play within that. That sounds like what you've done it's, with the writing. It's exactly though. the same process with the writing, yeah, you're right. When you're hired as a cinematographer, how many times will you read the screenplay for the film you're going to work on? Well, as I say, in my early career, not enough times, you know. Um, now, um, the only time that you really get to read a screenplay is the first time you read it. Um, and I think that goes for being a director or, um, or you know, helping somebody else. You only get one fresh read, so you're only seeing the movie continuously once to be surprised by anything that goes on. So that initial time that you read the script is the most important, and it should be without a break. Um, you should never... Uh, I think my acting teacher, Nina Fosh, told me that, that Whenever you get a script, all the way through. If you don't have enough time that you can sit down and read the whole thing, you shouldn't start it. So, so I think that's um, initially that. The, the thing is that after the third time that you read it, then now it's starting to become really technical because you're, um, you're starting to see the script in terms of the schedule, in terms of the locations where you're going to do it. So at some point, the, um, the breakdown becomes uh, the Bible that you're working off more than the script. So uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a flow into, you know, that first fresh read, uh, which, is what, which is the most important to uh, going into the schedule and the, and the breakdown and seeing what it's going to take to physically get the production done, you know. Why did Nina, your acting teacher, recommend that you if you're going to read the script, you do it in one full sitting, that you don't take breaks, that you're not sending an email, texting? I think, you know, when you sit in a cinema and you, you, you watch the movie, that's how you're going to experience it. And very often if you stop in a script so, and, and you pick it up, you'll say, oh, was, there must have been a day break in there. And you say, oh, no, the script happens over 24 hours. And so... Um, 
you know, I think it, it messes with your uh, sense of time that you're reading it. And it also takes away from the, you know, the script is going to be performed in one hour and a half, two hour piece. And that's how you should experience it. And experience it the first time because you're never going to get that first read ever again. And that's why uh, if I'm uh, if, if I'm writing something and I want to get a reaction from somebody, I'll be very careful about who, who I show it to at what stage. So I might, be, I'm, I might be getting pretty close to something and I've got to write a friend that knows how to read something in a rougher state and I'm, I might show it to them. But if I want to get the, I'll never be able to, I, I won't be able to use him again uh, because next time he reads it, he won't be reading it for the first time. So he'll have a different reaction. Now, it doesn't mean that the, the feedback won't be useful, but it'll never be that first fresh read, which I think is so important. You know. How many acting classes have you taken? Um, I don't know. I did a, I did a, a, a whole session with Nina Fosh. Um, uh, I've done some commercial acting classes. Um, which were very interesting because com com commercial storytelling is like, you know, 1.3 seconds is, is the units of time that you're working on a little particular thing and the production value that you can put into that very short amount of time. It's a very, very interesting discipline. Um, and uh, I think from there, so I think three or four different acting classes. I took some improv classes and... Um, but um, I, then I kind of went into more, I started uh, directing with more different people, which uh, was, I'm headed more there than I am to acting, so. You know. And where was this? The, the classes with Nina? With Nina Fausch? They were um, in a rehearsal studio um, above a bike shop on Melrose Avenue in Hollywood. She had a nice, nice little class there, you know. Do you have an internal checklist when you're reading a script before a film? As a director? As a cinematographer? As a cinematographer. Mm -hmm. um, no. I try to read the script without thinking about anything and just experience the, uh, uh, experience the script. Now, as I say in the technical process later on, then, then the stuff... But basically, by that time, I'm usually working off the location list and the and the uh, and the breakdown, whether it's day or night, and and um, you know it becomes a much more technical process. But when I first read the script, I try to be the audience and just sit back and enjoy it. You know. So then, are there certain things that you know within each scene uh, you have to sort of tick off in your own mind? Like a, a, a checklist broken down to each scene? Once you've gotten through the actual sitting down, reading the script as like the audience would experience it, now there's like a, a, a list of requirements for each scene, technically, that you're checking no, on. No, I don't really work that way. I'm, you know, I have to say that, um, you know, people draw storyboards, they do little diagrams of how they want it to, you know, they do little thumbnails. But the, but until you get the actors onto the set 
and they block the seeing because it's it's fine. Oh well, in the storyboard, you're you're over here, and you know, <clears throat> De Niro is saying, "No, I'm not standing over <laughs> here. I'm going to be right here." You know, so um, so the blocking of the scene is that to me is when the scene comes alive and when my work can really start, because um, without seeing where the actors are going to be, you know, lighting is very actor specific. You, know, you can light generally. But if you want to do something very moody and special, you really need to see where they're going to be working. And until you get onto that set and see where that is, and that's not until the director first uh, puts a scene together. You know, and uh, working with directors, I would say two thirds of them don't know how they're going to block it before they get the actors onto the set. Others have very specific ideas, well, we're going to do it over here, and you know. Um, but um, the blocking process is, is where the, the day's work begins for me, you know. And um, checklists, not, not really, that's a little too mechanical. I, I, you know, there are some shoots that are so tight that I have to order equipment that I need for that day just specifically for that one shot and you've got to do that but you know it's you, you if you're making a movie you don't want to say oh well we don't have any dolly shots today so we're not going to rent a dolly you know there are some things that are going to be part of your package and you're going to have and uh, they become the repertoire that you use to be creative and spontaneous um, but then there are other times when, you know, equipment is going to be uh, so expensive or the budget's so tight, you're going to have to say, I'm going to use this on this day, and, I'm gonna, and then you get very shot-specific about what kind of equipment you're going to use in a certain place and what kind of lighting equipment you're going to use in a certain place. So then how did storyboards weave their way into seeming like it a normal part of production? Is it just for some people? Is it a preference? Well, I think um, it helps, storyboards help um, non-visual directors visualize what they're going to do. But really the birth of storyboards and their greatest use to me um, is in visual effects sequences. Because then you're dealing with a discipline um, that's so specific to what's going to be in that particular shot and how the sequence is going to work because there are so many, you know, you, you, you can't shoot visual effects like documentary and, you know, it has to be very specific. And um, at that time, storyboards become uh, the tool to do that. Now, uh, when you do a special effects sequence in a, in a medium to large budget movie now, you have a previs department and storyboards have become now fully, uh, fully animated uh, sequences that are done ahead of time. And then you're, then you're kind of like executing a, an engineered movie in, the, uh, in terms of, um, in, in terms of uh, what you're gonna need to bring to a particular frame and shoot it a particular way to get the movie made, you know. So um, a lot of directors 
um, don't really like that process because their their freedom of blocking a scene kind of goes away. So um, I'm glad to say that in visual effects now, there are a lot of tools that are being developed, like virtual camera systems, which are putting that creativity back in the director's hands about being able to be much more spontaneous about how things are going to be done. Uh, I saw something about Rogue One recently, and their, their animated battle sequence is were actually shot by the director with a handheld virtual camera. So he was able to uh, use that to um, be very creative and spontaneous about the way he covered like a fully animated battle sequence. Do you remember where you were when you learned of Stanley Kubrick's passing? And how did it make you look at the life of a career? Well, it was kind of full circle with Stanley because <clears throat> I hadn't seen Doug Trumbull for many years. And I happened to be working in his studio in the Berkshires uh, the day that I heard that Stanley died. And uh, I was working on a very kind of high-tech virtual uh, set that uh, combined puppetry with uh, CG images. So the, the puppets were shot with um, a virtual camera. And um, the, wherever the camera was, was driving a computer, which showed you where you were in this three-dimensional reality. So it was a brand new technology that Doug had kind of uh, pioneered. And I was up there seeing him, and we both got the news together. So um, it was very sad. So Doug then left and went to the funeral, but I was on this job, so I was not able to do the same thing. So Sure. Did it make you look at all great careers have some pushback or, you know, like you can't be an auteur without having extreme criticism in one direction or the other, that, that that's part of the journey that's going to happen? Oh, yes, I think so. That goes so much with the territory of being an artist, you know, is that they're going to be the haters and they're going to be the lovers, you know, so... Um, but I, I had wondered at the time, because it was so close to the end of uh, I'd Wise Shut, that I didn't know whether he'd actually finished the picture or not, because it hadn't been released yet when he died. And it wasn't going to be for a little while, so I, I wondered whether he had actually finished the film. But uh, I, be I believe he had, and maybe that was the um, sense of completion that he did, which would would have been a lot better than uh, dying in the middle of a project, you know, so that was, yeah, I felt good, I felt good. I felt a life well lived, you know. Why did you write Lost Fair? Well, I co-wrote Lost Fair. Um, I actually found um, a story on Virtual Pitch Fest, which is, a, I'm a producer member of that, it's an online thing where people pitch to uh, me, the producer. So um, they, they'll look through the people that they can pitch to, and they'll kind of pick uh, different people that they like their resumes or they like what they've done in the past, and they'll choose you specifically to pitch their project to. And then you read the one-page pitch, and um, if you like it, you, you, uh, you go ahead and read the screenplay. 
So uh, it, it's, a, it's a good project for writers, virtual pitch fest, very good. Um, so I found the project there, and I had been looking <clears throat> for something that I thought that I could produce um, at a price. Um, and even though it had kids in it, and it was uh, kind of a road movie, and um, there were there were things that I, I mean, first of all, I just I loved the uh, the premise, I loved the characters, and I loved some of the dialogue, um, but it wasn't really in a full screenplay form. For instance, the main bad guy in the movie, he was talked about in the original script, but he wasn't a character in the movie. So the, there were certain formal things and structural things that needed to be done to the script. So that's why I got involved uh, writing uh, with Rachel Ray, who uh, originally pitched me on the project. When you found the pitch on Virtual Pitch Fest, what was it that stood out to you? Not the first time I've been asked that question, and it's it's very hard to say. I, you know, it spoke to me, and I think that's the greatest reason to make a movie is when when something really speaks to you. And it was about this uh, 11-year-old girl, and um, who had muscular dystrophy, so she was crippled, um, and she was not expected to live more than a year or so during the time that the movie was made. And she had been sold by her mother. And um, so it was a very dark story, but it also had a very kind of uh, metaphysical elements in the story. So it was, you know, um, I've been meditating and, and, and studying Western uh, esoteric philosophy for, for many years. And there's a thing about, you know, people think, oh, I've got to reach higher consciousness. But I don't, it, that's not enough. You've got to spherically expand your consciousness. So you're, you're reaching down into the depths as much as you're reaching for the height and, and, and the breadth of it. And so spherically, um, this movie was very dark and, and very light at the same time. And I think it was, uh, I think it was elements of that that I saw in the initial pitch that uh, really attracted me to it. So you contacted Rachel or through the website? You through, through the website, I contacted uh, Rachel and she, uh, <clears throat> she sent me the script and then somehow uh, she, uh, she got my contact information off the web, which is not hard to do. But, uh, so she, she started calling me and she just like, uh, she ravaged me with phone calls and, uh, you know, so um, I thought, gosh, she, um, so she was very tenacious. And um, I said, well, the, the chances of us getting this made as a movie, you know, are like, a, you know, 100 to 1, because that's the way the movies are, you know. So um, are you prepared to go on that journey with me? And she was. And so together we started whipping the, uh, uh, whipping the script into shape and developing characters and making it a makeable uh, movie. And um, 
Um, the next problem that I had was that I had an 11-year-old that was in every scene of a movie that needed to carry the movie. So I decided that I wasn't going to make the movie unless I found that 11-year-old girl. So um, I found Alexis Rosinski, and she is an, an amazing little actress. Uh, not so little anymore. She, time goes by. Um, and once I found her, then I decided to green light the movie. And I was in a position to green light the movie because I was financing the movie, which uh, is breaking the golden rule of cinema, which is never use your own money. Um, but uh, I loved the project so much and I was so into it that uh, I decided to do that. And Rachel, uh, the writer that you co-wrote it with, is she based in LA? No, and I never met Rachel until uh, sometime after the movie. So we wrote together remotely, and um, she's in a uh, in a wheelchair, and she lives in uh, Victoria, uh, Columbia. And um, I had a very nice visit with her uh, a few months ago. I went up to visit her and uh, got to meet her for the first time. But uh, it's basically the story of her, the true story of her childhood. So uh, it was pretty emotional you know, to meet her. Ah, so hence why she was so tenacious about it. Yes, and um, it was funny because she had followed my career. She said while her, while her and her brother were being uh, you know, abused by her parents, her, her escape was into the movies. And so she knew of me through those early credits. And uh, it was weird. And, and not only that, when she made the pitch, she made a mistake. She wasn't originally going to pitch it to me. She was going to pitch it because she didn't think it was my cup of tea. So she, she was going to pitch it to somebody else. So the pitch came to me uh, without her really uh, uh, targeting me. So. Uh, I guess it was meant to happen, you know. Did you outline the screenplay for Lost Fair? Well, there was there was an outline of what was going to happen um, in the uh, in the original pitch that was presented to me. The physical act of outlining. No, not in, not in the sense that I never got the four by five cards and pinned them up on the wall and reordered them. And so I never, I, I never approached the structure in that way. It just, it came, um, it came across much more organically than that. I, I in fact, <clears throat> I worked giving notes to Rachel and uh, she did three drafts. So she said the draft that I'd given her was kind of, I was was kind of the whitewashed version. I said, give me your grittiest version that you have. And then um, she did two more drafts after that. And although they went, they, they, they were good, but they went completely in a different direction. So I was trying to focus in a particular direction and stuff was getting wilder and wilder. And that's when I decided to come in and start structuring. So, um, so I did a draft that was based on three different drafts that she had done. And um, 
and uh, then honed it down. Then I gave it to some writer friends of mine. When I'm in doubt about structure, uh, they're very good because that once again, um, uh, you can read. I think the only people that can't really see the structure of a screenplay are the people that are writing it. You know, it's that you can be as erudite as you want about like criticizing other people. Say, oh well, this this is no you know page five. This should have happened, and you know. Uh, but you just somehow, when you're writing yourself, all that objectivity goes away. So it's very important to me to have a, a cadre of people that I go to to, uh, um, you know, help me ground me in a project. You know, I'm, I'm lucky to have met those people in my uh, journey of writing. You know, how was the dialogue when you first read it? The dialogue was one of the things that. I, attracted me to it very much. And there's a lot of the original dialogue in the, um, in the script. Now, there's the, the stuff that I added, but I tried to keep it in the same voices of those characters. For instance, there's, um, she has an imaginary friend in the movie that she speaks to who becomes a character in the movie. And um, a lot of the dialogue between her and her imaginary friend is completely untouched from the original version. So. Um, I, I loved her dialogue, you know, and I tried to keep it as intact. Obviously, it has to change when you change the structure and the overall thing, and there, and there are new scenes, but I tried to keep everything um, as, uh, as original as possible. Because, once again, when, you, when I read that pitch, that's, that's the freshest and best it's ever going to be, you know. Um, you know after that, you're not objective on because you've read it. You've read it once. All your objectivity has gone away. In other words, then then you, now you have to start looking at the story logically in terms of structure. But that first emotional feeling that you get from the script, you'll never you'll never have that beyond the first read. So there were three versions. It sounds like that you looked at the original and. You, someone said it was too vanilla, and then a gritty version, and then. Well, no. Uh, um, I said um, she said that she had rewritten it several times, you know, and I said, "Well, is, is this the grittiest version that I'm reading?" She said, "No, I put, I put this version out because um, people had told me people that she'd shown the project to before had said, uh, no, this is this is too dark. I'm not." I'm not going to be able to make this, you know. Um, but here I, I was asking her for her darkest version of it, you know. And it's the darkness uh, combined with the, the the light metaphysical that I found so interesting about the uh, about the project, because it's very dark and and very hopeful at the same time. So. Do you think if you hadn't been studying, you said Western? Uh... So not Buddha. I'm sorry. Esoteric philosophy. Okay. I, I say that because <laughs> then it's not religious. Okay, so. oh, sure. Non-denominational. Yeah. Right. Non-denominational. Um, if if you hadn't been studying these different uh, types of philosophy, would you be attracted to something that would be maybe considered very dark by some viewers? I probably would have. Um, veered away from it, I would think. And I think it's only, but you know, it, that whole training, um, uh, 
in that particular discipline is life-changing anyway, so who knows who I would have been a, as a person without having done that, you know? But so um, I'm, I'm, I'm really a believer in the fact that you are exactly where you need to be and everything that's happening in your life is for the perfect reason and, you know, nothing happens by accident. So that's, that's my philosophy. So I don't think... Um, I think I would have been attracted to the story, but who knows, because I was who I was when I read it. Where does the movie stand now? Well, I think we're just um, uh, coming up to uh, 10,000 streaming minutes on Amazon, so um, I think that's good. Um, but I, I don't really know. The, our distributors are they're great. They've got us into a lot of different places, but they don't they don't give me a lot of information about uh, um, uh, on a daily basis how it's doing. But they will they'll send me Amazon things on a monthly basis so I can see so I can see how it's performing. But I don't have any other information about any of the other platforms that it's running on because it's on a, it's on about six different platforms. So so I would say the movie's doing really well, you know and um, Indie Rights, who is our producer, they're very happy with the movie. It's their best grossing movie on on Amazon. So um, they, um, I think that I think the movie's doing well. What's been the feedback from like the verified rentals, or I don't know. If... Um, the just really that Amazon number. The uh, ten million streaming minute. I don't know what that means in terms of how many people watch the movie. I know you get paid by the minute that it's streamed. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the the pay scale changes. If you do if you do well and your numbers are up, you get paid more on the next uh, the next month or so, you know, or three months. So um, financially, I don't know how the movie is doing yet, but. Um, um, it, it looks like it's doing well. How did you teach yourself the craft of screenwriting? Well, like everything else in my life, I just started doing it, you know? And I, I look back on some of my earlier efforts and, uh, oh gosh, it's abysmal, you know? Uh, it's, it's tough. Um, I read a lot of books, uh, read all the required <clears throat> Truby, or uh, um, I think the the book that I enjoyed best was uh, Dramatic Screenwriting by Lego Segre, and it's actually a book about playwriting. But uh, I got a lot of out of that book in terms of um, <clears throat> he has a uh, a thing that he calls static conflict, and a lot of stuff that I wrote had static conflict in it and you have to have you have to have a rising conflict you know so you the conflict's going to come out of your characters but if that's uh, if that doesn't move that conflict doesn't grow and complicate uh, then it's just you know static conflict is you say oh well my script's got conflict in it yeah well it does but the conflict isn't moving so that was a very important lesson that I learned from that, that particular book on screenwriting, playwriting. 
Were there parts then that you went back in and said, yes, there might be an argument scene here, but it's not moving the story forward? How, how can I? You mean on a specific script that I'd... That for I'd, Lost Fair? Mm -hmm. Oh, for Lost Fair. Um, so I think I, I think I wrote um, Lost Fair more instinctually than I think you kind of internalize the rules that you learn. And, um, you know, I will look at a script and and I get to page 30 and I say, well, have I got to the first turning point? Or, you know, I'll read 10 pages and say, do I know what, do I know really what's going on here? Have I been set in motion? And But I think when I'm writing myself, I try not to use those rules. I will come back and look at it after, after I've done the writing work. But... Um, I try to let the rules kind of like be part of the language that's working in the background rather than um, try to follow them as I'm writing and I try to write from the heart as, um, um, as, as the process of actually putting the words down on paper. You know, The other thing I find about writing is that I find the muse does not visit me until I'm in the act of typing. And, you know, I can go on, you know, it's fine, I can go on a hike and I can think about the characters and, you know, but nothing creative really happens until I'm actually physically in the act of writing. That's just, I don't know if that's true for anybody else, but it's true for me. So did you set times for yourselves? I mean, if, if she's sending you one draft or, or different notes or different things, is there a specific time you're working on it? Um, you mean time of day? Yeah, like a time of day, place. Did you really have to hunker down and say, I need to be more disciplined because now this isn't just someone's script, it's also their life and their life story? Um, I don't know. I think writing is like painting for me. I get completely lost in it. So for me, there's not a particular time of day. I don't have to, you know, some people like to write late at night because the internal edit get smoothed out. I don't know whether it's because they've had a couple of drinks or not, but there are, uh, some people like to write then. But for me, there's no, there's no time of day, there's no place. It's completely, uh, you know, the, the, the energy and the love of the project is what like drives me to it. So there's, it's never a chore to come and sit down. It's, oh, where was I? You know, it's like, uh, um, for me, it's, it's just a, uh, an innate energy that happens, you know. Was there any pushback with you also being the director? So co-writer, producer, and now directing Lost Fair? No, I think, you know, it, it was a given. Um, in other words, this whole project is coming together for me to make this movie. I'd had, uh, in the previous two years, I'd had three projects that came to within two weeks of commencement of principal photography, uh, only to have the financing pulled or to, you know, and when you're that close, you've already made the movie. You've, you've uh, you know, you've broken down the script, you've cast it, you've, you, you know, you've done all this stuff. And so it's like, a, um, it's like a miscarriage, you know, I mean, it's, it's so awful. And uh, I decided I wasn't gonna let this happen this next time. I was going to make my own movie, and um, 
uh, Lost Fair was the perfect vehicle for it. Were there times where you would wake up in the middle of the night and say, am I really doing this? Or, or it was just, this is, I know this is the right time for me, especially this new mindset I'm adopting or whatever. Yes, I think you wake, wake up in a cold sweat, you know, <clears throat> am I really going to do this, you know? <clears throat> and even on, there was, a, there was a time where it actually, it was the first day of shooting and um, um, we were shooting some car sequences and um, Alexis was in the front seat of the cab <clears throat> and her, her mom came and said, where, where do we disable the, uh, the uh, um, she's, she's not going to get in the cab unless we disable the, uh, uh, the airbags. You know? And this is an older car and you can't disable the airbags. So, um, you know, it would have taken a mechanic to come, you know, and if I said, okay, I'm not making a movie. <laughs> so even, even on the first day of principal photography, there was a, there was a chance to pull back, you know, and not do it, but, um, that, that didn't happen. So, uh, because, um, when I finished the script and I told uh, Elliot Rosenblatt, my co-producer, um, how much I wanted to spend on the movie or how much I could spend on the movie, he said, well, all right, uh, I can make that stretch to 11 days. So um, I thought, 11 days? I've, you know, I've made some 18-day movies. And I thought that was about as fast as you could make a movie. So 11 days was, you know, when you when you're on that schedule, nothing can go wrong. So it really, I mean, the planning of it and how it how it works needs to be down to the 15-minute segment, you know. And um, you know, so it's probably um, an ogre trying to get that done. So if I if I had pushback, it was probably. Uh, because I was like so moving ahead and blindly moving ahead, not blindly, but just focused on uh, on where we were going, you know. Did you have to have a tutor on set? Yes, yes. So 13 days, tutor on set. 11 days. 11 days, I'm sorry, okay. And, and uh, tutor on the set, and we're making a road movie. So that means that, our, uh, you know, we have car, car, photography inside the cars, which is very time consuming. You know, normally you get a car and you put it on a process trailer and then you light it and then you've got certain angles and then you tow the car. You know, I just had to, I got these two uh, uh, Canon um, XC10s and suction cup mounts and I just put them on the windows and they're, uh, <clears throat> just said, okay, go driving and do the scene. So I never really, I never really got to see those car scenes except uh, when they came back. And usually I didn't have time to like rewind the footage and I had to rely on the actors and say, did you get it? You know, yeah, we got it, you know. But I would have them do the scene maybe three times, so at least I had some choices with it, you know. So, um, yeah, pretty, pretty grueling, the schedule, you know. Is this your first feature directing credit? It's the first uh, movie that I've been so involved in. I, I shot a picture for Roger Corman in the uh, in the 80s called uh, Vendetta, which is a, a women in prison movie. Um, kind of a cult classic. It's got a pretty good rating on IMDb. But uh, um, 
but this was the first, um, as an auteur, this is the first project that I'd done, yeah. Do you plan another? I do. I have a project called uh, Garden Country, and uh, it's about um, a marine pilot, and she tries to go through the justice system, and it fails her, and she takes matters into her own hands. So. Timely. Not a tough story. Yeah, and a timely one. A timely at that. one wow. You seem to be drawn to female protagonists. I do. What's, what's that about? I don't know, yeah. <clears throat> um, before it was fashionable. Now, now, now it's, a, uh, it's almost a requirement if you're going to make an action movie, you've got to have a female uh, hero. But when I was developing those other projects, it was not. Um, Except for Norma Ray, I guess. Well, yeah, Back in the there, day. there have been there have been exceptions to the there rule, have, but, yeah. but I I, <laughs> um, I pitched Garden Country. I think uh, I've been I've had that project in the back of my mind for a long time. I pitched that to someone and said, "Oh, female protagonist? No, no, we're not we're not interested." In it. So, Did you you co-write it? I'm sorry, or you Garden Country? Um, I co-wrote with uh, one of my uh, most trusted uh, writing partners. I love to write with partners because um, you, you you know you're writing dialogue, so that's two people back and forth. So it makes makes sense to me to have two people in the room, you know. But it but it's a it's a tricky relationship, so you can only do it with certain people. But I wrote this um, with Steve Finley, who I've probably written maybe four four different screenplays with over the years. Um, and so it's my original screen story, and, and we wrote it together. Now, originally, I, I wanted Steve, not, not just because I enjoy working with him, but I needed to get this off the press really quickly, because um, it, about four years ago when I started writing it, um, there were many documentaries about rape in the military, and. Um, I thought this is a topical subject. It's got to happen really quickly, but unfortunately, that uh, that has legs. Um, the the whole situation, and it's worse now than uh, than it was when I started writing the story. You know. At what point in your career did you say, "I want to go from being the cinematographer to the director," or was that always a plan? It was always the plan. Um, I think. Um, as I described when I was talking about my special effects career, and then my, I, I spent the early part of my career saying, okay, I've done that, I, now I want to move on to this. And I've done that, now I'm going to move on to this. But as I get later in my career, I like to bring all that stuff together. So, you know, stuff that I've done is stuff that I want to do again. So um, you know, this new project that I have involves Visual effects, it's going to be a very strong, I'm sure I'll use a DP, but has a very strong visual sense to it. And, uh, um, you know, as a director, then the, the, the characters are the most important thing to me. So, But, yeah, it, it, it's always been the plan. And what about the darkness level of the screenplay, knowing that it's a very, um, you know, traumatic topic? Um, how how much do you plan to go dark, and how much do you plan to have other parts to it? Well, I think the I, the screenplay has been in the drawer for a little while, 
And um, I showed it to a friend recently, and uh, he was very excited about it. So I reread it, and I'm going, "Hey, this was really good. Who wrote this stuff? You know, this is good." I, and so um, I found the screenplay on rereading it. The darkness is there, uh, but the excitement is there, and the um, and the I wouldn't say comedy, but the, the the lightness of the human condition is there. So um, it, I wouldn't call it a dark and somber script, although it deals with a very uh, dark subject. You know. What's been the easiest year for you as a filmmaker? Last year. <laughs> I, think, um, I think the tools that are available uh, for filmmakers now it used to be that to make a movie, you needed this huge infrastructure technically. Um, you, you needed these cameras, and then the, you needed the stuff to go to the lab, and then you need to bring it back and, and uh, make a print, and then edit it on a moviola, and um, cut the negative, and uh, mix it. And, and all those tools, from the cameras, to the editing programs, to the VFX software, um, have all become totally available to everybody, which to me has democratized the whole filmmaking process. And um, I think it's absolutely fabulous that anyone with a vision and, and, and you know, if, if I don't know how to do something, I just go, I watch a, a YouTube video on how to do it and I teach myself how to do it. But I guess I've done that my whole career, but now it's so available, that, you know. Um, I, yesterday I'm looking at some budgeting um, software, so I'm, so I'm uh, watching some YouTube videos, and uh, uh, it's, it's available, it's out there. So um, I think it's easier to be a filmmaker now than it ever was. What's been the most difficult year for you as a filmmaker? I don't know, all movies are difficult, you know? Um, and y usually if a movie is easy and you're really having a good time while you're making it, my experience is it doesn't turn out very well, you know? Um, now, some, some projects have been like real nightmares um, because of the, you know, some, some directors, they like to create really negative energy on the set and they work off the kind of energy of the people that are working for them that they're consummate professionals, so they dig their heels in and say, I don't care what he says, I'm gonna do a great job. Uh, but I don't like creating that kind of energy on a set. To me, um, you know, projects flow, <clears throat> uh, they flow out of love of, and everybody working in the medium that they're loving on a story that they love. And um, so I've, I've worked with some difficult people, but um, I try not to be one. Although I have to say on my last movie, I, I, I told my producer, um, you know, because basically I made it with a bunch of young kids because I had 11 days. They had to have experience, but they couldn't be you know, my cinematographer, basically I'm doing street theater and I'm covering it with two cameras either. 
um, over shoulder both sides or, or widen tight from one side and then from the other side. So, um, so I was, I, and you know, I'm moving along, I'm pretty tough. So I said to my producer, oh yeah, that one guy in the art department, he didn't like me, you know. And Elliot said, nobody liked you. What are you talking about? You know? So I'm, I guess, I guess I'm tough, you know. <laughs> well, it's a weird thing when someone's sort of at the helm of the ship. Yeah. Because it's easy to um, find fault and everybody has different angles for wanting to take somebody down a couple notches or whatever. So everybody's kind of angling. Right. Know? And so you can be a politician as much as you want with certain things, but there's always going to be anglers right. in the water. You know? uh, I agree. And, and I, think, um, I think when you're making a movie um, and you're focused on a, on a really tight schedule, um, it's very, you know, if, if anything uh, is negative about the process, it's the clock that's ticking and it's getting the stuff done in, in the right amount of time. And as, as the director, that's your, uh, that's your greatest ally and your, and your biggest enemy is the clock. Um, and you, you can't rely on, you know, I can say, well, the assistant director, he didn't move it along fast enough, or this guy didn't do this. Or, you know, the, the, the buck stops with you, and you're financing it as well, so boom, you know. Um, I hope it's never that tough again, but it sure. was a very lovely process as well, so. Why do you think people fail in Hollywood? I think people fail because they fail to realize uh, how tenacious you have to be. And the, all the rejection that you get, and this is the hardest for me to say, is like when you get that rejection, you know you're one step closer to the one person that's going to say yes, you know, and you have to go through. So it's a, it's a hundred ten one, you know. You have to have a hundred meetings and <clears throat> ten people say yes, and one person actually does it. So, it's um, um, I think other reasons that people fail are because they let. I've seen a lot of directors that say, "I'm the director," you know, and it's like they're not really coming from a place of knowledge and love of the material, or you know, they're they're really they're playing the director, you know, and um, usually when people don't really know what they're doing, they also get very insecure and um, and therefore very mean to people because things aren't going the way they should, and they're looking to play the blame game, you know. Um, I think another reason that uh, I think a reason that I probably haven't gone further is my inability to network as well as I should. Uh, I've, always, I've always found that very difficult. It's very, very hard for me to go into a room and work the room, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of stand in the corner and uh, sip my cappuccino, you know? Uh, but um, I think if I had it to do over again, I would, I would work on that. I also had a big uh, problem with public speaking. Um, 
which I went to uh, Toastmasters oh, to um, kind of overcome. And now I do a lot of uh, um, talks at Comic-Cons and um, teaching different places in the industry. And uh, that working on that has really uh, uh, allowed me to move forward. Have you ever thought of what your life would have been like if you hadn't had that opportunity to come to California? And you would, or you might have been sort of metaphorically banging your head to get into this closed clique? Well, if I'd stayed in England and, and worked the system, I guess, <clears throat> you know, it, it almost seemed to me like it's, it's whoever uh, bought the, you know, you'd go to the bar after, after work and you had to buy a round of drinks for everybody. And, uh, you know, it was it's very, very transactional there, you know. Um, no, I, I, you know, even even before I had the opportunity, I, uh, I was always going to be in Los Angeles. My, my mom had, uh, she had traveled around the world. Her aunts had sent her around the world before she got married, and um, and, you know, I had this National Geographic uh, that showed me the Los Angeles basin, the Disney Studios. Oh, there's Disneyland, 20th Century Fox, you know. I was always going to be here. I don't know, so I, I don't. I don't think the option of staying in England ever would have happened. But I, I probably would have navigated that system okay, you know, because my passion was to be in the business. You know. Where does your tenacity come from? Because you sit before us, sort of like a, 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 a with a monk-like, uh, you know, resolve, and I, I, I don't see like a, you know, you don't like networking, and I see somebody who, who seems more even keel. But where, where does that? Tenacity come from with your career? I don't know. I think it comes, tenacity is not in the moment for me. It's over a much longer period of time. But, you know, my career, it, it looks like a, a, dr a dream from great project to great project. But in between, it always seemed like, you know, never going to work again. You know, how am I going to deal with this? Where's the next job going to come from? You know, the good news is that the resume builds builds on itself. So that's that's a good thing. But um, it's I think it's just a slow forward movement. You know, this is where I'm going, and you never lose sight of that. But it's not like it's not like holding on tight to the moment or to any particular one thing. I mean, there are, there, there are times to do that, but I think it's, a, it's, it's just a long, slow process, you know. So, um, I get, but I guess it looks like tenacity, you know. Do you see, whether from your own family or whatever, just younger people wanting things faster and not wanting to, you know, whether it's children in the business or whatever, just a certain route, whereas before you had to more take your time with it, now everybody wants to jump ahead and do something? Times have changed. Yes, I, I do. I think, uh, I think the kids today, um, the kids today, <laughs> um, I think they have it much harder because um, even, even though there's a lot of um, product being made now, um, the competition to get that work is much stiffer than it was when I started out. Um, but I do also see 
the, the lack of, you know, when it doesn't come quickly, they kind of like move, move on to something else, you know, and I think it's only by maintaining the focus, you know, and you're gonna get, you're gonna get knocked down a whole bunch of times, um, but you just gotta, you just gotta keep going, you know. Yeah, and you saw your, your parents were in the industry, is that right? Or at least yes. your dad was, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, my, um, I, my dad worked as staff at the BBC, so I didn't see the, the kind of uh, competitive um, aspect of what I needed to go through to have a successful career. I didn't see him tackling those same problems, but I think he definitely gave me the, the background and the beginning of that knowledge, you know, because I would go to dailies with him and. You know, uh, BBC shows were done half in the studio and half as filmed elements, and they would like combine them. And it was weird because uh, the in-studio stuff was at 60 frames a second, and then they suddenly cut to this 24 frame a second. So it didn't look like the same piece of uh, uh, meter at all. But anyway, they did that. But I would watch him. I would go filming with him. I was never in the studio with him, but um, but he would take me on location. And uh, you know he would look at a strip of film and he said every every picture on there every picture should be a perfect picture you know so uh, even even though it was a movie you know so the composition is going to be right so he gave me this whole kind of basis and um, I think his ability to work with actors which he was really known for you know and he was known for really good casting so all those. All those things were achievable to me. It doesn't mean I was good at them when I, when I started, but it was not, was not an impossibility. I could, I could see light at the end of the tunnel, you know. But at the same time, when you came to California, you knew that that little dark room that you had been offered a cush, <laughs> quote unquote, cush job right. was not for you. Yes, no, definitely not for me. And, 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 you know, going on to the next thing was not necessarily um, how you build, in other words, I never, I never built a, um, a really great um, DP career. I mean, I, I, I had a DP career and, uh, you know, I've worked on some really, um, uh, really great projects. But um, I think, um, I think you, you're taught that you have to focus in a particular area and I do see you want to, if your ambition is to be a great DP, then you really have to focus on that. But mine, mine was not to do that. So I really took a DP career into a commercial uh, directing career. And that way, you know, I, I must have shot like 300 television commercials and each one is like a little production. So you, you're going through that, even though it's for a much shorter period of time, you're going through the, the casting process, the location process, the, the equipment process, and the post process. You're going through that many, many, many times, you know. So that was a, a really good training for me. And then, you know, the writing happened on a much slower level, but um, studying, acting, and directing while that was going on has brought me to where I am now, you know. What are some things in the last five years you learned that you wish you knew previously? I have to say it's probably the ability to network 
and also the cold call companies or and not really mind the rejection as much as I used to. So um, I think it's, um, you know, I, I look at my age and say, but if, you, if you can't make that telephone call now, you're never ever gonna be able to make it. So, um, so I think it's a, a, a more relaxed attitude about what's gonna happen. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of the last five years, um, have been uh, making this movie uh, last third, I, I would say th maybe three years of it from the beginning to, to now. And that's a, that's a, a life stream come true. So um, I'm feeling really good about stuff now. Yeah. And why would you be cold calling uh, companies? Um, to, to sell the next project. So uh, you got to get past the uh, the gatekeepers, you know, that are preventing you from getting to the uh, the person that can read your script and say yes to it. Because my next project is not something I can self-finance, so I have to uh, I have to sell it. Got to get it out there, you know. Do you think people are less apt to say no these days? You just don't hear from them. Do you think before people gave you a clear no or yes? Maybe now nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, Everybody's sensitive, so nobody I don't know, wants it's to. A, it's a bit like a, 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 when I was in the commercial business. People, I made a lot of commercials in Japan, and um, they used to say, "Well, when you're talking to Japanese companies, you know, it's like yes means maybe, and maybe means no." So uh, <laughs> uh, I think. Um, I, th I don't think people say no to you. Some do very quickly, very professionally. You know, they, they'll read it right away, and most most just like disappear into the ozone, and uh, you never hear from them. So, which is why it's important. You know, earlier in my career, I would like send my script out. Oh, please read my script, and then you'd wait six weeks and not hear from them. And you know, so now it's just like. Three companies every day, you know, you just, you know, there's a lot of, lot of fish in the sea. You gotta just keep going and keep it out there. And I'm a lot better than that, uh, doing that than I used to be, so. You really think networking helps with success? Yes. I think people like to make movies with their friends and they wanna be, they wanna be friends and those are the projects that get made, you know. Other than the whole kind of impenetrable um, situations that a lot of movies are deals, they're not. They're not really like you know. We think of them as like uh, creative projects, but it's the film industry. So um, you know, it's a lot of the big movies that get made. They're they're deals. They're not. They're not creative projects like they used to be in the old studio system. And so I think that's why you see a lot of projects that are not cast well, because um, <clears throat> we got the script, we got this actor, he's interested, and you know, the, the, you know, movies are put together and engineered more than being um, 
works of art and, and love that get made by people. Sad. Except for some art house cinema that I've seen recently. Yes. It's been quite good. Yeah, no, independent cinema is still alive and well. And actually, a lot more alive and well, um, I have to say Lost Fair is, uh, goes into that category, you know. And um, there wouldn't have been an outlet for those uh, movies. This movie would never have got distribution five years ago. You know? It would have been very, very difficult. But now with streaming services, once again, it's democratized the whole process. You can make a little movie, and if you make it well, people want to watch it, you know, so that's great. Did it have theatrical distribution? It had a, it had a, a weak um, theatrical. Unfortunately, it was supposed to run three times a day instead of once a day, and therefore I wasn't, it wasn't eligible to, uh, for academy consideration. And the reason that I wanted to do that was because that gives you an opportunity to mail out DVDs and Blu-rays to a lot of people in the industry. So whereas the movie has done well um, commercially or is, is, is doing well commercially, not that many people inside the business have seen it. So that would have been nice. So we live and learn, you know. Tell us about the biggest success you've had in your career. Uh, it's always my next job is the, is the biggest success that I'm going to make it. So um, I think I've been so lucky throughout my career, it would be very hard to uh, pinpoint uh, one high point. Uh, but um, when I look back on you know, what I have achieved. I, I, I didn't realize what I'd achieved until I started doing Comic-Cons and people would come up to me and said, oh gosh, yes, so, uh, Star Wars, that's, the, that, that's uh, why I got in the business when I saw that movie. Or I've had people come up and say, yeah, I saw your movie Tron and or, uh, I decided to be a software programmer and this and that. Until you see what, uh, so I would say the, the big, Success is the body of work and the influence that it's had on, on people. So that sounds like it's something that you're not able to see right away. It's going to take time and then interactions. Exactly. Did it make you look at the projects you worked on? Because you knew how much struggle or whatever was behind it, but then to have someone approach you after you were on a panel or something right. and, and say that. Well, it certainly made it all worthwhile, you know, so. Right. Did you always know you were going to work at higher levels in the industry? I always aspired to work at higher levels. I didn't know I was going to get what I was aiming for, but uh, I've achieved many, many of the things that I wanted to. And there will always be people that are, it's like, a, um, it's like in racing, there's always somebody faster than you and there's always somebody slower than you. So it's like you've, you've, you've achieved greatly, but um, uh, you'll never get there, you know. I think competition matters less. Um, and maybe after like 35, is there so much pressure on people to like do this, do this, do this by age, whatever. And it seems like the used to be 40 and now it's 30 and now it's 25. And do you right. think as, as time goes on, people let competition go because even if they have achieved it, 
they go, yeah, but was, was it enjoyable? Well, it, for me, it's been enjoyable on every step of the, uh, uh, on every step of the road, you know? I think, um, I think there is that pressure, and I've put pressure on myself to do that. I don't really feel like coming from, uh, coming from outside, because people, people always say, gosh, look what you've done, you know? But for me, it's never enough, you know? So that's always what pushes me on to the next thing. So I think, I think competitiveness, I think I competed with myself, you know? I think that's, that's how it works for me, you know? I mean, and of course there are people that, gosh, I wish I'd done that, I wish I'd made that movie, I wish I'd, you know, I wish I was on my uh, tenth or uh, uh, feature grossing or a uh, hundred million dollars, you know, but um, I'm, I'm where I am, I'm very content with that now, and uh, so I think as time goes by you're a little, um, you're a little easier on yourself. Right. Sometimes I see younger people and they just seem so, I mean, they, they have to have something no matter what the cost. And I'm just wondering, is society sped up? They watch their parents lose things during the recession or, or struggle during the recession. Right. And then it's become even more like life or death. Sometimes I see that in people. Well, desperation is uh, not a good feature. It doesn't do that desperate feeling doesn't do well when you're interviewing for a job. It doesn't do well for yourself while you're trying to achieve something. So um, yes, I think a lot of people do feel that, but I don't think it's constructive to their careers at all, you know. Right. I think some people though are hardwired to be more competitive than others. I guess that's the American way, huh? You know? Maybe, that's true, yeah. <laughs>